Praise the Lord. Well, that's a good group of young people. Amen. There they go. Uh, praise the Lord. It's so good to gather together, so good to gather around the Scripture. And we've been going through Acts chapter 2. If you've been with us, we've been going through it for a number of months, uh, looking at the formation and the beginning of the uh, church. And we recognize that on the day of Pentecost for the preaching of Peter that there were 3,000 souls came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why we know that they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is because of what they did. They separated from that which was false, and they identified with that which happened to be, again, truth. They left this huge mass, again, of individuals, and they went over to a smaller group and came forward to be baptized. But we asked the question, now that the church has been formed, now that we have individuals in the body of Christ, what does the body of Christ do next? What do they busy themselves with? How do they function? What is their activity that they give themselves over? And that's where we come to verse number 42. And I love verse number 42 because it really deals with what the church did in its infancy, in its purity. It didn't have all of these things coming in on it. But what we have is individuals that love Christ, that want to know Christ, that want to praise Christ, that want to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that there was four activities in verse number 42. And we've been going to each one of them. And let me just say the order, I think, is a divine order. You know, we realize that Scripture is God-breathed. So this order, again, is not just there happenstance, but this order, again, is there by divine decree. And so we see a logical progression through all, all of these four things. We see what comes first is the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. They realize that they did not know everything after that one sermon, again, of Peter, of Jesus, of how they were to live, how they were to function, about their salvation in Jesus Christ. And they needed to know more, and they wanted to know more. And as that was being preached, what it caused was a warm-hearted fellowship. I mean, it's amazing to go through these opening uh, few chapters and see, again, that one spirit, that one mind, this sacrificial giving that nobody would be in need. You know, and here, again, we see it going. And, and what is it? They realize who Christ is. They realize the graciousness of his gift. And they start loving people who they naturally would not love. And this turns over even to what we looked at last time is the Lord's table. You know, the breaking of bread and why it's so important, because we realize in the breaking of bread, what we have is visual reminders of what we accept by faith, right? We don't see Jesus today, but we realize that one came in human flesh. One was given a humanity like ours, but was unlike us in that Jesus never sinned. And we realize when we look at the juice, it's a reminder that he shed his blood, that there was a violent sacrifice. And we're told to do this as often as we eat and as often as we drink until he comes. In other words, Jesus is coming back. You know, one day our faith is going to turn, be turned to sight. One day we will see our beloved. And we look forward to that day. And wouldn't it be grand, you know, if we're here this morning and Christ returns you know, and we see him just as he is, and we become like him because we do see him as it is. What an amazing, again, truth. And now we come to the fourth element, and the fourth element that happens to be again in this list happens to be again prayer. And let me just say this. When you look at the book of Acts, the book of Acts is many times called the prayer book of the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever known that, but as you go through chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, we realize it records history. And chapter after chapter after chapter records the, the God's people praying. They saw the necessity again of prayer. So, you know, as we go through this and we look at it, you know, in the, starting the next chapter, we have this. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Why were they going to the temple? 
to pray. You know, in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 24, and this is right after the disciples were arrested. They had healed the men at the gate beautiful. They had preached the gospel. They were arrested. And now they're threatened. They're threatened with, if you keep preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be uh, punished. And we see that they go away, and right after they go away, this is, this is what we read. They reported to the people, and then we read. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, and here they are praying again, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You know, when they chose the seven deacons, otherwise these seven in, individuals that would administer the goods that were being taken in, we read in Acts chapter 6 and verse number 6, these they set before the apostles. And listen what happened. And they prayed and laid their hands on it. And think of St- uh, Stephen. When Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is being stoned, and just before he, he ascends into heaven and comes into the presence of Christ, we read this in Acts chapter uh, 9. Now, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 7, and it says, And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. In other words, he's praying, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Ananias. You know, what was Ananias doing when he was called to go to Paul? Because Paul had these scales that happened to be on, on his eyes. Well, we read in Acts 9, it says, Now there was a, a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. Right? The Lord said to him in a vision. In other words, Ananias is praying. Ananias, he said, and he, and, and he said, here am I, Lord. The healing of Dorcas is accompanied by prayer in Acts 9. But when Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And think of what Peter's doing. When, he, when all of a sudden he's given that vision to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 10. In verse number 9, we read, The next day, as they were on a journey and approached the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now, we're only on chapter number 10. You know, and we can see over and over and over that the people of God prayed. And you can understand why the book of Acts, why the early recording of the history of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, why it's called a prayer book of the New Testament, because they saw the urgency, they saw the need of prayer. And that's what God's people do. God's true people, one of the authentic signs that we are a true church, one of the authentic signs that we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, is we lift up our voices to this great God. Uh, who happens to be above, we come in between, uh, before his throne room in order to, to receive grace. And the question we have to ask ourselves as we think about it is, do we pray? You know, if this was so important in the early church, we have to look at our own lives and we have to ask the question, do we pray? You know, and even more importantly, when you look at all of these instances, most of these instances are the people of God praying together. And so the question we should ask is not only do I pray privately, but do I pray with the people of God? Do I see it as as important in my life? Do I see it, again, as an absolute necessity? Because I think when you look at the other three, the other three are a lot easier than this one. 
You know, we realize that we come under the preaching of the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, just by coming out to church, just by coming out to Bible study, and it's taught to us. We can be passive, and that can be given to us. We realize that there's various different times that are put together, like last Sunday afternoon, where we could fellowship together, where we can come together, where we can commune with one another, where we can talk to one another. And those times of fellowship, many times we just go and we fellowship. We talk about our Lord. And then the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread, again, is, uh, is every, every month our first service. And we realize we engage in that. All those are, do- are done. But let me tell you, when it comes to prayer, prayer is a lot more difficult, isn't it? You know, even private prayers, what we should pray, you know, how long we should pray before God, uh, the, the, the various different issues that happen at the beginning of life. And then to pray with God's people. You know, so often people feel uncomfortable, you know, I just don't know what to say. You know, what are people going to think if I pray out loud? And therefore, I'm just not going to pray. And it's incredible, again, that you can have a huge fellowship of God's people at a fellowship. But when it comes to a prayer meeting, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the meeting becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And why? Because people just find it so uncomfortable. In fact, you go, go through, through a church after church after church after church, and prayer meetings, by and large, have been dropped. Other words, again, the corporate response of the people of God coming together where they actually pray, uh, pray is j- j- just not done. And let me, let me just say, when you look at the early church, and it should be evident by what we just read this morning, as you look at the early church, as you look at the authentic church, they understood the necessity of prayer in their life. But let me ask you the question, do you see the necessity in your life? Let me, let me say, if this is an authentic mark of these early believers in the early church, then let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, it has to be a mark of, of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it also has to be a mark of Emmanuel Baptist Church, that we need to be a people who pray together. And I really want to stimulate that in, in, uh, this morning. I want to agitate your hearts with the necessity of coming before this great God and recognizing that he hears our prayer, recognizing beyond a shadow of a doubt, he uses our prayer more than we could ever think or more than we can ever consider. And so, so, so in order to agitate, in order to really um, hopefully create a desire to prayer, I just want to answer two questions. And the first question is, what is prayer? You know, what is prayer? I, you, you know, I, we so often throw definitions and we don't know what it is. You know, so when we talk about prayer, what is it? And the second question I really want us to consider is basically this as we look at the early church, is why is it so important? I mean, why was it so vital for these believers that every single page of the book of Acts that we read that they prayed? And I hope, again, as we answer these questions, it will really buttress our hearts to come before this great God, both privately and also corporately, also together, and pray to this great God. But the first question I want us to ask is, what is prayer? Because I think a lot of times, this is what we pray. In fact, to answer that question, I'm going to answer it in the negative. First of all, I'm going to tell you what prayer isn't. Because I think a lot of times when we look at prayer, we think it's basically this. It's how do I get my will that I want done on earth, done in heaven? Isn't it true? You know, if you can give me a formula, if you can give me the right words to say, the right order... You know, so I can get my will, the things that I want done here on earth, done in heaven. And it's incredible because we'll see this this morning that the early church really didn't care if they were persecuted. They really didn't care, again, if they would suffer 
opposition for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, their their commander, their chief, their Lord, their Savior had promised that they would suffer for the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you never find them praying like this. Uh, we, We just pray for an easy life. We just pray for a carefree life. Take all of our troubles away. No, we'll find that they even thank God that they were found worthy to pray or worthy to suffer. And why? Because even as our Lord taught us to, to pray, remember how our Lord taught us to pray? Remember the first line of the Lord's Prayer, right? right? The first line of the Lord's Prayer goes like this. Your kingdom come, right? Not my kingdom. Whose kingdom? Your kingdom come. Here it is. Your will be done. Here it is. On earth as it is in heaven. It's not about, again, how do I get my earthly will done in heaven? It's about his heavenly will where everything is according to his glory. Be done on earth. Right? And God, if it brings suffering in my life, if it brings hardship, if it brings trials, if it brings persecution, whatever it brings, if it will magnify you and make your glory known, make your son believed upon, then bring it on, Lord. You know, make it happen. And why? Because it's not about our will. It's about his will. You know, and it's incredible because I think the more that we understand, and here's his logical order, the more that we understand the apostles' doctrine, the more we see the beauty of Jesus Christ and who he is, the more we understand the brevity and the shortness of life, we realize beyond a shadow of doubt, it's not about my comfort. It's not about, again, what I want in life. And the more we pray like that, all of a sudden, his will becomes our will. And we start praying along those things. And let me say, tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, prayer is not some sort of formula in order to get what I want. And prayer, again, is not something that I would say would be dead, bland, boring, lifeless, ritualistic. And I think so often we get so convicted about our prayer life that we keep a journal And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you keep a prayer journal, praise God. I know you're putting in some some effort. But here's here's what I mean by that. We can pray about the same things over and over and over and over and over again. It's almost like our minds go on interlude, don't they? We say words. We say statements. You know, but our minds are not engaged. You know, and it just becomes sort of a form. It becomes a ritual. It becomes something that's lifeless. It becomes something that's dead. You never find that in the book of Acts. You find prayer, again, vital and living. You know, I think even a lot of uh, congregations do that when they recite the Lord's Prayer. And let me just say this. I think that's a good practice to recite the Lord's Prayer. I think it really teaches us to pray. I think it's a glorious practice. But I think, again, so often we practice it, or we say it over and over and over and over again. We can say it like that, and we don't even think of the words, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done, right? 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 And then we go on, holy be your name. But I wonder how many people think about the holiness of God, that God's, God's name, God's presence, who he is might be holy in my heart and holy in God's people's hearts. And we really pray about that that he would sanctify us, that he would purify us, that we would live for him. I wonder how many times we pray and give us this day our daily bread. And you know what that teaches us? That teaches us that I'm weak. You know, if God left me to myself, I wouldn't be able to provide that, but I can't provide. I cannot be the husband. I cannot be the wife. I cannot be the parent. I cannot be the church member that God wants me to be without his grace in my life. And I wonder how many times we pray. That we think about that, or we think about forgiveness. You know, forgive us as you have forgiven us. You know, forgive us our debtors as you forgave us. I wonder how many times we think about that. 
You know, who, who do I hold a grudge against? Who am I despising in my heart right now? You know, and let me tell you what prayer isn't. Prayer is not ritualistic. You know, I got this list. Let me go through the list. There, I can check off what I've done. It's absolutely life-giving. You know, we often talk about that, don't we? Almost like a prayer is a commodity. It's impersonal. Have you done your prayers? It's almost like this commodity. If you have enough of them here, enough of them there, then you get. But prayer is absolutely vital. And let me tell you what prayer is. Prayer is basically this, and this is a simple definition. Prayer is just this. It is communing with God, right? Coming before him, conversing. You know, we're speaking to this great God. And here's the amazing thing. When we speak, if we are truly the people of God, think of, think of what a privilege it is. My prayers, my feeble prayers come right into the throne room of God. You know, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And think of it, because my God, because we are in this personal relationship, delights to him, for his children to pray to him, to come to him. So it's not like, oh, here comes that Kevin Scott. What a mess up. You know, I wonder what he wants this time. It's never like that. But what he does is delight to hear the petitions, delight to hear the cries, delight to hear even the worship of our lips to this great God. You know, that happens to be again above. And I wonder again how many times we think about that. Let me uh, listen to the confidence that we can have in prayer in Hebrews chapter 4. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one, and a high priest, remember who the high priest is. He's the representative of us before a holy God. And we have this holy God-man, Jesus Christ. You know, and it says this. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And then these three words are so critical. Yet without sin. And because of this, let us then, because of who represents us, because of his nature, because of his character, it says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to find and help and need. Do you get that? I mean, so often we can look at ourselves, we can look at our lives, we can say, man, I'm such a mess up. I mean, what, why would God ever hear me? And we realize that we don't come through our merits. And we might even be arguing in our hearts, yeah, yeah, Pastor, but you don't realize the conversations I've had this week. You, you don't realize what's come out of my mouth. You don't realize what I've said. You don't realize what I've done. You don't realize what I have looked at. Looked at. And here's the promise. If you're a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're trusting this Christ for salvation through the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the reason why we are heard is not because of our own righteousness, not because of the stellar nature of our life, but because of his stellar nature, because of who Christ is. Right? So often we have that appendage at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name. You know, it's almost like a magical formula. Okay, I'll say in Jesus' name and poof, you know. He hears me. This is, this is what it means. I come through the merits of another. You know, and that's what it means, confidence here. Confidence isn't the idea, again, of arrogance. You know, look at me. I've got it all together. I can pray to God. No, the confidence is I am coming through this great high priest who has been tempted in every respect like me. And here's the change. Yet without sin, I come through him. And I'm told beyond a shadow of a doubt that I will be heard. And it's amazing because the people of God throughout the book of Acts recognize this. 
And let me just give you one uh, sample of a prayer, and it happens to be in Acts chapter 4 and verses 24 and following. And let me just say this just before before I begin to read it. uh, There's four parts to this. And I want you to see how all four of these parts fit together because there is a logical nature of how they pray. You know, and you can see the fervency. You can hear the passion that happens to be there. And this is right after, think about it, it's right after they're threatened. Here's these religious authorities who put to death the Lord Jesus, and they've commanded, don't preach in Jesus' name. If you preach in Jesus' name, there's going to be consequences. And listen to what they do. They gather with the people of God, right? Uh, James, uh, uh, John and Peter find the people of God, find the church, and when they heard it, in other words, Uh, Peter and John reported this back to the church. They lifted up their voices together. The church prayed together to God and said, who is God? Who is God? You know, here's these religious authorities. We're the power that that happens to be. And listen how this prayer starts. Sovereign Lord. Don't you love that? You know, who is God? Is there anyone greater? Listen to what they say. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, everything in them. And then he quotes scripture. You know, we know that this would happen. And we know that this would happen, that people would oppose you because we're told this in scripture. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, in other words, it's inspired by God, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves, um, the earth have set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against your anointed. And they're basically saying this. You know, as we look at the Old Testament, this is a quote from Psalm chapter 2. And it basically talks about the arrogance of people that they actually think they can stand against God. They actually think that they can change in all of their strength and all of their wisdom and all of their opposition. They can actually change God. And it's it's to show the absolute foolish nature. Right? Because why? Because God's will is always accomplished. And look at, because they give an example of that. It says, for truly... In this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, who was gathered against him? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now, look at what comes to pass, right? Here's what comes to pass. To do do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. Don't you love that? Right? Right? Here's these men. Don't you preach. Don't Don't you preach in that name, Jesus. Right? And here it is. It's always been this way. And here people think that they can somehow stop, somehow foster, somehow, somehow derange the plan of God. And the plan of God is what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, starting where? At Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the other promost parts of the world. That's, that's the will of God. Right? So think about it. So here it is. Here it is. This is what we're told. This is what we see in time. Now, here's the question. How would you pray for yourself? I know how I would pray for myself. In fact, I'm guilty of praying it. You know, somebody might come against me, and what do I pray? I pray for deliverance. I pray, Lord, get rid of this threat. Right? You know what they prayed for? Because they know the will of God. The will of God is for the gospel to go into all the world. And listen to what they pray. It's so absolutely breathtaking, beautiful. Now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants 
to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders performed the name of your holy servant Jesus. They don't pray for deliverance. They pray for boldness to what? Echo forth the name of Jesus Christ. Right? To do your will. And think of it. Think of how, how much their hearts, think of how much your minds are occupied with the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ being known. Right? I, I think so often it's all about our glory. It's all about our fame. It's all about our ease of life. And here, when you go through the book of Acts, 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 it's about the glory of another. It's about the fame of the other. It's about knowing his specific will as he's revealed it in his word and praying for the tenacity of the character to carry out that will. And I wonder if we think about that. Because I wonder, because the second question that I really wanted to engage in again this morning was basically this. Why is it so important? Why why do we find on every single page, you know, we often talk about people who are prayers and people that are doers as if prayer isn't anything, right? Right? You know, you have the doers and you have it. But, but here they take the time out and they pray. Here they take the time out and they pray. Here they take the time out and pray. Why was it so important? And let me tell you something about prayer. Prayer is a grace that's given to us by God, right? We, we all know that. Now, what's a grace? A grace is not only unmerited favor, but it's this. It's ill-deserved favor. Otherwise, I don't deserve this favor. I don't deserve... Right? Because of my sin, I deserve to be banished from the presence of God, but I can come into the presence of God through prayer. And it's a privilege. But when we say it's a privilege, this is what we have to be careful of. Just because I say something is a privilege in my life doesn't mean it's important. Doesn't mean it's a necessity. Right? And I think we give ourselves over. We can say prayer is important. We can say, or we, we can say prayer, prayer is a privilege, all that we want. But unless we're convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's important, we're not going to engage in it. Right? I might say, you know, when I'm visiting a different country, maybe I make a trip to Greece. Right? And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, in the country of Greece, there is what is called an embassy. Right? A Canadian embassy. Guess what I can do as a Canadian citizen? I have the privilege, right? I have the right to go in that embassy. And why? You know, somebody's from Australia, they don't have the right to go in there. But I do, and why? Because I am a Canadian citizen. And I will tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if I went to Greece, I probably wouldn't even look up where the embassy is. Unless I was in trouble. Right? And I think that's the way people think of prayer. Yeah, prayer's a privilege. It's great. It's grand. I can come into the throne room of God. And it's great there if I really need it. But if I don't need it, guess what? I don't engage in it. And I believe because our lives are so busy, because our lives are so complicated so often, we give ourselves over to not only to what we count as a privilege, we give ourselves over to, more importantly, what we think is absolutely important, what's, a, what's absolutely necessary in our lives. Now, here's the thing you have to understand about the early church. The early church understood that prayer was absolutely essential in their lives, absolutely necessary. And here's the question we have to ask ourselves then. Why was prayer so important for them? Why? And it's because of this. And I hope you get this. I hope you realize it. 
Prayer was absolutely necessary in their lives because of this, because they recognized how weak and needy they are. Right? We read that prayer in Acts chapter 4, and it's never like this. Oh, Lord, look at us. Look at what we've become. Look at how strong. There's no bravado there. You know, but what is it right at the end? There is a prayer for boldness, because why did they pray for boldness? Why? Because they realized they weren't bold. You don't have to look too back in their history, right? Just a little over 50 days, right? right? And here it is, the night in which Jesus is betrayed, and he goes to the garden, and he says, watch and pray for me, and he goes and prays in the garden, and what do they do? They sleep. And why do they sleep? Because they're absolutely convinced of a lie that they are strong. Isn't it true? That very night, Jesus, we would be willing to go to jail for you. We would be willing to suffer for you. We would even willing to be to die for you. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you think you're strong, if you think you're able beyond a shadow of a doubt, then you just never pray. And I believe one of the most blinding things that happen to begin in our life is how weak we are. Right? It's easy to judge others. It's easy to see their weakness. And so often we're blinded as far as our hatred, as far as our envy, as far as our bitterness, as far as our lust, as far as our pride. I mean, think of this, because it's not only the disciples, but it's all the others that happen to be gathered together. And they could think back. And they could think back of uttering out, crucify him, crucify him, or not even coming to his aid. And they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt he was an innocent man. But nobody would stand and do God's will at that time. And they understood that they were weak. They were needy. And how about you? If you look, and I realize that people can pray, people can pray, people can pray, and they can be hypocrites. But it's not the other way around. You know, you don't have a reverse hypocrite. Well, I don't pray, but I'm really a humble person who doesn't rely on myself. You know, and if I was to look at your prayer life, if I was to look how many times you came before this throne of grace because you recognized how weak and needy you were, what would I see? Would I see evidence that you are weak and needy? You realize the truth that the word of God says about you? Or would I see beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're strong, you're sufficient, you don't need uh, this Savior, unless something desperately wrong goes in your life. Because I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, the more that we read, the more that we learn, the more that we see Christ and who he is and recognize the significance of the salvation in our life, the more that we see that we are weak. And gentlemen, those who happen to be husbands here, the, here, here, here uh, this morning, let me ask you, how many times do you cry out to God? Have you ever thought about your calling? And how there's no way that you could ever do it. Right? Right? Because what is the calling in your life? To love your wife as Jesus Christ loved the church. And how many times have you cried? God, I can't do it. Help me to be a one woman man. God, I can't do it. I'm so lazy and I so much think of myself rather than him, her. God, I can't do it. I so often want to be served rather than be a servant leader. God, help me. I'm weak. I'm needy. I mean, how many times do we cry out in our, in our weakness for God's grace? How many times, ladies? You know, 
oh God, help me. It's so easy to criticize. It's so easy to nitpick. It's so easy not to love my husband as the church loves Jesus Christ. God, it's so hard. It's so difficult. I don't want to do it. I don't want to submit. I don't want to show that relationship that Jesus has with you. God, help me. Help me to be the greatest encouragement in my husband's life because I can't do it without you. I mean, how many times do you pray that? How many? I think a lot of times parents just, just have kids and hope they raise themselves. You know, the highest calling that you have as a Christian parent is to shepherd your child's heart. To help, with God's grace, direct them to Jesus Christ. You know, that, that means, men, when you get home at night, your task isn't done. You know, I've worked all day. Where's the newspaper, right? Right? And the pipe? Not, not the pipe, but anyways. And the uh, television set, right? Right? What's your calling? Our calling is to be an example of the grace of Christ to our children, so much so that they see the beauty and attractiveness of Jesus Christ. And here it is. I can't do it. I can't do it. How about teens? Right? I know the truth about your, your, your parents. I want all the teens to look at me. No, let me see if you can look at me. I know the truth about your parents. And guess what? They're foolish. Right? Sometimes they give uh, commands that seem so foolish. But here's, here's the thing. God's will for your life is for you to honor your parents. And so often you want to honor your friends. So much so you want to honor yourself. And guess what? You cannot live the way that God wants you to live without his grace. And how many times do you cry out, God, I can't do it. I need to care more about you than I do about my friends and my peer group. How many times? How many times do we cry out when somebody sins against us and we replay it and replay it and replay it? God, I know that you have commanded me to forgive this person. God, I can't do it without your grace. You see, because there is a truth that's told. Let me just say this about Wednesday night. I think Wednesday night, the reason why it's more, not more practical in our life is we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that the greatest problem I have is outside of me. If I can just change the people, if I can just change the relationships, if I can just change the location, if I can just change the geography, if I can just change the church, all my problems will disappear. Why? Because the greatest problem is not my internal sin that says, Lord, the most important thing is to glorify, to praise, to worship, to do your will. Isn't it true? You know, because the greatest thing that when we look in the face of Jesus Christ, what we find out about ourselves is what we are positionally absolutely righteous, absolutely holy. We're not practically. You know, we still have remaining sin that happened to be again in our life. And one of the greatest things that keeps us from prayer is not recognizing our weakness, but it's also not recognizing this. I might be impotent. I might be weak, but here it is. God is omnipotent. And here's the amazing thing. God is a grace-giving God. Do you believe that? You know, because uh, we read this, this um, verse earlier, but let me read it again. Uh, Hebrews 4, 16, after telling us that Christ is our great high priest, it says, let us then, 
Right? This is in conclusion. If that is true, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And then is a purpose statement. That is a purpose statement. This is why I come to the throne of grace. That we may, and that word may is strong in the Greek. It just means this. That we will, right? There's no doubt about this. We will receive mercy and find grace to help. When? In time of need. You know, think about it. Here it is. Oh, man. Remember? We were so convinced of our righteousness. We were so convinced of our bravery. We were so convinced of our strength that in that very night that Jesus was betrayed, we deserted him. Oh, Father, give us boldness to preach. And you know what happens in chapter number five? Right? You know what happens in chapter five? They're arrested again. And guess why they're arrested? for preaching the gospel. And arrested and thrown in prison for the night, and the next morning they're going to appear before the Sanhedrin, and guess what happens? Angel of the Lord lets them out of prison, and guess where they're found? You know, because they call them, and they're not there, they're not in, pre- uh, uh, in uh, prison, the Sanhedrin says, where are they? And guess where they're found? They're found in the temple, and guess what they're doing in the temple? Guess what they're doing? Anyone know? They're preaching the gospel. So here comes the temple guards. They go and they arrest them again. They bring them before the Sanhedrin. You know, and here, the Sanhedrin are just incensed, and they want to put them to death. That's the punishment for disobeying us. And then there's a man called Gamaliel. He's not even a friend. But he said, let's let the Lord take care of this. There's other false Christs that have come along, and they've, they're gone now. Just let time take its place. Don't do this. So even though they want to put them to death, they warn them, they beat them for preaching Jesus Christ. Imagine being beaten for your faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what they did because they prayed? You know what they did? Well, let me read in Acts chapter 5, beginning of verse number 41. Then they left the presence of the council. And listen to what it says. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then he says this. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ is Jesus. Now think of it, because we live in a celebrity environment, and it's coming to Christianity, where we take a pastor, where we take a preacher, and we uplift him, and we say, look at him. Look at him. And we actually worship these people. Right? And think of it, because it would be very easy in the early church. I mean, here's the disciples, they're beaten, they go on preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then, and then we say, look at, look at them. Look at how amazing they are. But they know the truth about themselves. And you know what they would say? They wouldn't say, look at us. They would say this. Look at him. Look at him. Look at, look at, look at the one who came and died. And when we come to him... There is grace and mercy in our time of need to do his will. Now think of that. Because I think, when it comes to prayer, I think if we were to ask, and we were to go go around and do a secret poll, are you a failure in prayer? I think it would be probably 90% failure. And 10% would say, I've got a pretty good prayer life. You know, I think that's what the poll would do. And why? Because so often we hear people having these wonderful experiences in prayer. 
You know, here this person was healed of this disease. Here again, all of a sudden, there was this affliction and it was turned on his head. And we hear the big things that happen to begin in life. But so often, and more often than not, it's not God's will to heal. But it is God's will that we might do his will. And I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, when I look at the crowd that is assembled here this morning, it's incredible how many times, how often, God grants the prayers of God's people. And you, and you know how I know that? I know that because you're here this morning. Have you ever thought about how amazing that is? I find that just absolutely amazing. When you look at the world, the world hates Jesus Christ. You look at our society that happens to be around here. There's more and more laws that are being passed. Every um, picture of Christianity that's given again in Hollywood is negative. Look at these backwards, ignorant, unloving people. And you see that all the time. And, you, and then you go to work and you have all of these obstacles to living by faith. Nobody seems to have a clean mouth, even as they speak. And then we come to church many times and there's even obstacles of, of people, with people in the church that do not want you to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, you're here. And we sing this song from the depths of our hearts, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Why don't we leave? And we might say, once saved, always saved. That's true, but how does God cause us to persevere? And here it is. The prayers of God's people. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt it was God's will for them to preach a specific gospel. God, give us boldness. Whatever the cost, give us boldness. And God answered. And I wonder if God uses prayers to this extent, why wouldn't they pray? But here's the question why wouldn't we pray? When you look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you look at the gathering of God's people, those that are least attended, happen to be the prayers, the prayer meeting of God's people. May it never be that way. May we seek to honor, to glorify, to recognize the need, right? It's a privilege, but it's absolutely necessary in our life. You know, all of us should devote our lives to prayer, to a great grace and mercy-giving God. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we consider these truths this morning, Lord, as we consider your grace and your glory, when we consider even as the people in the early church prayed, how the apostles prayed, how congregations came together, Lord, and sought to do your will in the midst of a crooked generation, Lord, to herald forth the most important gospel Lord, the most important message that has ever been heralded, the one, Lord, through your spirit that gives life. We have to ask ourselves in our short lives, what's most important to us? Is it ease? Is it luxury? Is it things? Is it lust? Or is it your will? God, make us a praying people. Make us a people who will confidently, through Jesus Christ, Come to that throne of grace 
And again, we come through his merits this morning. Amen. Brother.